Hey, Commute listeners, what up? It's Dave. And first of all, Happy New Year. I hope you and yours had a restful and lovely holiday season. Jay and I took the first week of 2022 off to spend more time with our families, but not to fear. We will be back next week with an all-new episode of the show. In fact, we've got a lot of exciting things coming up for you in 2022. Stay tuned for a giveaway in a couple of weeks to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Wow! And we'll have some fun guest appearances coming up as well. This week, we are replaying one of our most popular episodes, which is actually pretty timely in recognition of the recent release of the Beatles documentary, Get Back, streaming exclusively on Disney+. This week, we are re-airing episode number 25, The Beatles vs. the Bay City Rollers. Wait, who? The ongoing appeal of Dungeons & Dragons and Rude Man. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week for an all-new episode of Commute. You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave, he's Jay. Three topics. We will be with you for the length of the average commute. I'll tell you what, you'll be smarter when you get there. That's our intention on this edition of Commute. In the 1970s, a boy band was dubbed the next Beatles because of the crazy fan support they received right out of the gate. But did that support end up killing their career? Although once only played by nerds, Dungeons & Dragons today is more popular and more mainstream than ever. Don't call it a comeback. We analyze the uncanny ascent of the famous tabletop role-playing game. Nerd alert! Ever heard of the Rude Man Giant? Well, put it this way, if you're ever in England, he's letting it all hang out since 700 AD. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, in the 1970s, a Scottish boy band named the Bay City Rollers took the UK by storm. Are you familiar with the Bay City Rollers? No, if you would have told me, if you would have asked me who are the Bay City Rollers, I would have guessed that there's some sort of roller derby uh, derby team (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jay, they were dubbed the next Beatles. Now, a lot of people were called the next Beatles, but they were the first. Now, the Bay City Rollers were a teen pop rock band decked out in tartar outfits. Now, what tartar is, is think of the striped materials traditionally associated with kilts in Scotland. And they were prepared to be the next it band in pop music because teenage girls would pack their shows. It was very Beatle-like, so much so that security routinely had to stop the shows halfway through out of fear that they could not adequately control the hysteria. Roller mania in the 1970s, an obvious take on Beatlemania from the 1960s, was in full force. But Jay, a quick look at Spotify play counts, which you and I know is a great indicator of how popular a band actually is and their staying power. The Beatles, today, in July, 24.5 million Spotify streams last month. The Bay City Rollers, 630,000. 
Oh. <laughs> so who were the Bay City Rollers, and what actually did happen? Well, and you'll see how the whole thing was already kind of falling apart from the beginning, it's hard to say who they really were. The band changed lineups, Jay, through the years more often than either of us change underwear. 24 individuals are considered to have been legitimate members of the band. In 1971, the band landed a record deal on the strength of its first single, Keep On Dancing. Despite not producing any additional singles for a few more years, the band somehow persevered. Manager-promoter Tam Patton made lineup changes to the band and hired proven songwriters in 1972 in an effort to keep the band from just vanishing and becoming just another one-hit wonder. One of those writers was a guy named Phil Coulter, who was impressed, if not a bit worried, about what he had just walked into. They had an unshakable belief in themselves, said Coulter, according to the BBC, believing that they could be superstars when in reality they could barely tune their own guitars. Coulter was adamant that the band utilized studio musicians if they were ever going to be taken seriously. He feared it would take too long and cost too much for the actual band to come up with its own sound. And Jay, this kind of worked. In the mid-1970s, the band produced some major hits, including the song Remember that topped out at number six on the record charts. But while by the end of 1974, the band's album Rolling was actually number one on the charts, the band, from a personal standpoint, was unhappy. They wanted to write their own songs. They wanted to play on the recorded tracks. And the fame had taken a toll on their mental health. Over the next few years, the band would actually maintain a mild level of success touring the UK and the US and selling over 120 million records, but disputes over money, personal tragedies, including death, and unlike the Beatles, they had a fan base that was growing up quickly and not taking their fandom with them. All of this led to an implosion in 1978. So the band still technically exists today, and actually, Jay, two of the bands exist Infighting among a few of the current members has led to a old Bay City Rollers and a new Bay City Rollers band. Unfortunately, both bands have uh, been sidelined due to both the pandemic and unexpected deaths and haven't actually played a show in years, but the dysfunction continues and the what-ifs will haunt the remaining 20-odd members forever. This reminds me of that uh, debate that they always make you have in philosophy class about the ship of Theseus, where they ask like, hey, there's this ship, and if you take apart it piece by piece and replace every single board on the ship, if you've replaced every piece of it, is it still the ship of Theseus after you're done? If you replace every member uh, with 24 members and then split them, in ha- split them in half, like, is it still the Bay City Rollers anymore at this point or something different? So Dave, have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Do you know what Dungeons and Dragons is? Like, do you know how it works, I guess? Yeah, I do know how it works. To me, it's always been like a more nerdy, complicated version of Risk. <laughs> so you don't really know how it works, is what you're saying. Uh, well, let me, let me fill Exposed. in the gaps for you, Dave. And then let me explain to you kind of uh, where Dungeons & Dragons is today. So Dungeons & Dragons is essentially a role-playing tabletop game in which one player, known as a dungeon master, tells an interactive story in which players participate by making choices. 
The dungeon master guides players through a story that they create or take from a script, and then the players who create fictional characters choose how to approach the story and make choices, fight, trade, talk, and explore using a series of dice that determine how successful they are in their adventures. And Dave, the game to me is unlike anything else in the world because it encourages so much creativity, a lot of it on the fly. So like, for example, if I'm the dungeon master and I've planned out this story and I sort of know how I want it to go in a nutshell, you as the character could totally throw me for a loop by deciding to approach the game in an entirely different direction. And then I got to make changes on the fly. Uh, You may decide to be more of a scoundrel than a hero, for example, which is something that I know that you uh, would do. Uh, And so it can best be described as collaborative storytelling. And although technically playing the game is free, there are many materials that players can buy, such as books with adventures, characters, monsters, landscapes, etc., even maps and pieces to spread out on the table to visualize the experience better. So you'd think that during the year of coronavirus that this sort of game would have trouble surviving, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Box sets and the company's essential kits that has everything players need to start an adventure actually recorded record sales last year. So what happened? So the game that was first published in 1974 has always been knitted into pop culture. First embraced by small niche groups of fantasy lovers around the country, the game grew to a wider appeal through the 80s and 90s. And although the game became the target of 80s parents when it was falsely linked to the occult and devil worship and what was called the satanic panic, the game has survived and even thrived <laughs> in the years since. Uh, in 2014, Wizards of the Coast, which is the company that owns Dungeons & Dragons, released the fifth edition of the game, uh, which is praised as much more streamlined and user-friendly as opposed to the very complicated versions of years past. Today, Dungeons & Dragons is mentioned more in TV shows and movies than ever before and is embraced uh, by many in the mainstream, including many celebrities. Uh, In fact, Dave, despite being really at its core a social in-person experience, 2020, the year of coronavirus, grew Dungeons & Dragons more to even greater heights. Sales of the game materials jumped 33% last year, adding to a six-year growth streak, and the overall revenue for Wizards of the Coast, who own other brands such as Magic the Gathering, topped $816 million in 2020, rising 24%. The game was typically played in person with friends around a table or at a local gaming shop in the community, but today, the game is being played live over the internet on sites such as YouTube and Twitch. Many formerly in-person D&D groups moved to Zoom sessions. Virtual tabletop game hosting platforms host thousands of games a day, and popular online channels recruit celebrities to play through campaigns. Uh, Celebrities such as Vin Diesel, Jon Favreau, Drew Barrymore, Dwayne Johnson, Stephen Colbert, Anderson Cooper have all reported being players of the game, and that list only scratches the surface. And Dave, if you are a good dungeon master, you can even make a career out of it. Some in-demand dungeon masters can be hired to run campaigns for you and your friends if you've got the cash to pay them. And very in-demand dungeon masters are even flown across the country for long weekends to run campaigns for friends looking for a unique experience.
experience. The game is more welcoming than it ever has been. Gone are rules that mandate that female characters' strength be less than males, as it used to be in the 80s. Characters come in all skin colors and body types, and Dungeons & Dragons used to be a nerdy guy thing, but the number of female players is at 38% and climbing. And Dave, from my perspective... Here's how I personally got back into it. A couple of my close friends, Will and Tyler, that I went to high school with, we were texting at the height point of lockdowns. Anxiety was at an all-time high, and I had a lot of time on my hands. And as we reminisced about the past and we talked about Dungeons & Dragons, we were just sort of like, why don't we run a game? So we hopped on Zoom, a campaign was created, and we played it. And for me, it was such a great use of my time because it helped me reconnect with friends. It helped me through an anxiety-riddled time in my life, and the nostalgia was just good for me. Uh, And this game at its core, it's truly about connection. And I believe that's why it survived for so long. All of this means that while nerd culture used to really not be cool and your nerd interests maybe used to be something that you kept to yourself, Dungeons and Dragons is now mainstream. Well, Jay, I have a lot of questions I could ask you, and I know that you you are an experienced Dungeons and Dragons player, uh, but I actually have a really good buddy who is a big fan of the show, Commute, and he plays Dungeons and Dragons every week. So he is our resident expert on the topic. So we had such a good reaction to last week's resident expert on fireworks. I thought, what the heck? Let's call in the expert on Dungeons and Dragons. So here's a conversation with Patrick Stanley about the ins and outs of Dungeons and Dragons. So Patrick, let's just start here. What makes D&D so fun? I mean, if if you've ever... uh read a book or watched a movie and enjoyed a story, then uh, then you'll enjoy d and I mean, it's a, it's a collaborative storytelling game. I feel like anybody from any walk of life in the right scenario would have an absolute blast doing it. So am I wrong in thinking that it's like Risk and that it takes like eight hours to play? Okay. Um, so... <laughs> In, in its ultimate form, I suppose, it's much longer than Risk. What's the longest session that you've ever played? The longest session I've ever done is probably close to eight hours. The longest campaign is probably like 14 months. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of relatively short in the grand scheme of things. There's people that have got the same game going for like 30 years. Tell me a little bit about what you just showed me before we came on, because this was perfect timing. You were you were kind of jacked up about something you just got in the mail. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I pledged to a Kickstarter uh, in October of 2019 uh, for like 150 uh, like miniatures, which... If you imagine a, a model car, but of a bunch of monsters. <laughs> so what's uh, what would you say is more evil, D&D or Magic the Gathering cards? Uh, it's funny that you say that. Uh, they, are, they are owned by the same company now, and they have just now in the past few years been doing a, a crossover where uh, the world of Magic now has like source books in D&D, and there's actually the brand new... Uh, Magic of the Gathering uh, set is based in the lore of Dungeons and Dragons, so it's completely equally evil. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Did my mom tell you to ask that question? <laughs> so, if we're thinking of the rankings of evil, there's Twilight and Harry Potter. They're just kind of evil, and then there's there's oh, Magic yeah. and D and D, which are you you might need some help, some therapy. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild how uh, Narnia and Lord of the Rings just escaped that conversation. <laughs> Last question. You are pitching to somebody to try this. Try to sell me on it. What's your pitch to play Dungeons & Dragons? Okay. 
The hardest thing anytime anyone wants to play Dungeons & Dragons is finding a dungeon master. However, everybody also knows somebody that plays D&D or has played D&D. My suggestion would be find somebody who is comfortable being a dungeon master. That's usually the role that I get relegated to. And just ask them to just ask them what it's like to play. They'll create a scenario for you if it's a one night thing or a couple week thing. I'm always happy to get people involved uh, uh, you know any way I can. And once you sit down and you start making your character and you realize that you know you're a, a lawful evil elf that has a penchant for revenge for uh, for his dead brother or something like that, it, it doesn't take very long before people get real into it. You got me. I just on Amazon just now. I just <laughs> <laughs> went in and bought a set. I say uh, maybe like a half orc bard for you, Trav. So warning, as we head into this final segment, I would say this is probably rated TV 14. Uh, so if, any, if you have any small children that listen to Commute With You, maybe you want to, I don't know, push them out of the room for this one. But Jay, think about this. Okay, so most historic things in life at least make a little bit of sense, right? Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Volcanoes, we get it. Prehistoric artifacts like dinosaur bones. Can we imagine dinosaurs roaming our current Earth like Jurassic Park? I mean, I mean <laughs> kind of. Like, I have no idea where you're going with this right now. <laughs> just stay with me. Just stay with me. But you, you can imagine that, right? Like, it makes sense. You see the dinosaur bones on display in the Smithsonian, and you go, okay, I get it. That existed. It doesn't exist now. Okay. Okay. Uh, go on. Well, Jay, then there are things that make no sense at all, okay? And they hurt my brain to think about it. Now, what I mean by this is like things like Stonehenge or the creation of the universe, or why the show Lost had to ruin everything by ending so badly. But the newest strange thing to come on my radar, you're going to love. It's called the Cerna Abyss Giant, a.k.a. the Rude Man. Are you familiar with this? No, I don't think so. Okay. Tell me more. All right. All right. Well, let me give you and the rest of the commute audience a quick lowdown. So to put it simply, and since we are a family show... The Cerna Abyss Giant is a geoglyph, which, Jay, is basically a large piece of artwork displayed in nature, etched into a natural landscape. It's on a hilltop in Dorset, England, of a giant beast holding a massive club with a 26-foot-long penis. (laughs) Jay, this 180-foot-tall figure is drawn out of white chalk, and until this May, its origin has been a complete mystery. I was about to ask if the one, like, if it was to scale, like you started with the size of the penis, and so I was like, but, but now that you've said that the entire figure is 180, you know, okay, it, it's to scale, so it's it makes a little, more sense. It's, it's a little out of proportion. But scientists, <laughs> Jay, have long debated where this giant came from, how long it's been there, what it was supposed to represent. Guesses have ranged from a Roman-inspired representation of Hercules to a fertility symbol from the Iron Age, even prompting couples through the years that are struggling to conceive, I kid you not, to make the journey to England to kneel at the 26-foot penis and ask the gods to bless them with a child. Now, my wife and I struggled for a while with a little infertility, so perhaps we should have considered that. Well, according to reporting from the Atlantic, May's findings, that's the month of May, May's findings were based on research that had been started in March of 2020, focusing on, of all things, snail migrations. 
The results found that the giant sketch was originally drawn between A.D. 700 and A.D. 1100 in the late Saxon and early medieval periods. The research team brought soil samples from the giant to a lab to study them, plucking out hundreds and hundreds of snail shell fragments to study. Researchers focused on the species and characteristics of the snails, hoping for some time-stamping information, finally focusing on two specific prehistoric species that helped to finally provide an origin range for this naked giant. So now, researchers have changed the research focus to the why behind the drawing. Current working theories suggest that it may have been used as a way to convert people to worship a pagan god or been a visual representation of a deity from that time period. And as we all know, Jay, deities don't need clothes. Regardless, it's safe to assume the meaning has shifted as time has passed. What's really fascinating to me, though, as if the rest of this hasn't been, is that besides the nearly 30-foot ding-dong is the drawing's staying power. People have been chalking and re-chalking this giant for centuries, with researchers estimating that every few decades, the giant requires a refresh. And with the re-chalking comes the opportunity to slightly change the giant, with each culture putting their own spin on it. The giant has also made many appearances through the years in pop culture. Examples ranging from jeans companies photoshopping pants on him, condom (laughs) companies obviously photoshopping condoms on him, the most recent Borat movie from Sasha Baron Cohen using it for film publicity, and the 2007 Simpsons movie actually angering some local neo-pagans who performed a rain magic dance in protest. So as uh, has been said on this podcast before, I do teach world history for a living. And one of the things that I say in my history class all the time is everyone in history is just some guy, right? Because we always kind of think like, well, everybody in history is just kind of dumb and we're kind of smart. Some of them were really smart, like Socrates, but like everybody else was dumb, you know? Uh, But you know, when I think about a drawing like this, I just kind of think like, maybe we're overthinking it. Like maybe it's just somebody thought it was super funny. Why would you go out and draw it today? Uh, maybe that's the same reason why somebody would go out and draw it in 700 AD. Just consider <laughs> that and maybe it just gets a little bit more simple. And man, we'll put a picture of the rude man in the show notes. You got to see this thing. Uh, the drone shots, aerial views of this this 180 foot chalk monster. Not to blur it out a little bit. Yeah, we, yeah, you're right. We are a family it. show. We try to we try to keep things PG. Uh, but I don't know about you, Jay, but I'm about to look into becoming. I think it's a dungeon master. Yeah. Hey, well, no, say, seriously, uh, we'll run it. We'll run a part time gig. Let's let's recruit some listeners. Let's I, run. I a game. talked to Patrick. I talked to Patrick after we had him on the show, which I appreciate Patrick Stanley coming on. He said he would any, run a game. Any for us. commute listeners that want to be a part of the commute the podcast uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, reach out to us at commutepodcast.com and let's set it up. But thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commute. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review to the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. And check us out on all social media platforms. Our website is commutethepodcast.com. You can drop us a line there as well. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, I'm Dave Traub. We will see you next week.